What do marmalade and crackers, a deer, and the cloud of witnesses teach us about Christ's presence? Learn more on this episode where we discuss how Betsy and Corey Ten Boom teach us in the hiding place about gratitude in the midst of difficult circumstances and God's sovereignty while living through unspeakable horror. Through their story, they show us how to daily accept the invitation to join in what God is doing, even when that means entering with God into difficult trials. Welcome to Fiction That Forms Us, stories that inspire us and practices that help us change, a podcast where we explore life-changing stories with characters whose journeys give us a vision for a better way of life. Through God's invitation and grace to practice spiritual disciplines, we can journey toward becoming fully human like Jesus as we live in the kingdom of God in the here and now. I'm your host, Christy Lahoda, and today we will continue our discussion on the characters Betsy and Corey Ten Boom from the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom and the adapted play turned cinematic stage production by A.S. Pete Peterson. In the last episode, Pete told us how he became steeped in the Ten Boom story. Today we will learn what Betsy and Corey teach us from their experience of seeing, glorifying, and reflecting God in the midst of darkness. I'm joined again by Pete Peterson, a man who wears many hats, some of which include author and playwright, artistic director of Rabbit Room Theater, and producer at Lamb and Flag Studios. Let's dive back in. Okay, so we're talking about the hiding place. Are we going to focus on Corey or Betsy? Okay, so, well, one of the realizations that I had, or when I went and sat down to read The Hiding Place, the book, for the first time, I assumed that this is about Corey Ten Boom. Mm-hmm. And while that is true, I, the big takeaway for me was that Betsy Ten Boom is the hero of the story. Yes. And essentially, Corey is just witnessing to her sister. Uh, and that I did not expect. I didn't see coming. And it was really moving. Um, but it was also one of the things that I was so interested in when I got ready to adapt it because Betsy was a hard person for me to relate to. Hmm. I felt like she was so otherworldly in the way that she looked at what was around her that I almost couldn't understand it. You know, she's, she goes through this experience in Robinsbrook and at every turn she's grateful for things, you know, which is just very hard to understand, but it's also fascinating. So one of the things that I wanted to do in my writing was really work out a way that I could understand Betsy and kind of did that through the character of Corey because Corey's watching her and learning from her. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had this realization that Corey's entire life, she's learned from her father in all these interesting ways. And then when her father goes away, uh, she becomes a student of Betsy in a lot of ways. And then when Betsy goes away, she has to come to the realization that it's my turn. And she steps up and answers that call for the rest of her life, which is pretty remarkable. Yes. Yes, she does. She learned so much from Betsy. And yeah. Betsy obviously learned from, from her father, as did Corey. Right. Absolutely. She went through this experience in her 50s, which is kind of unbelievable to me. You know, I'm 51, and I feel like, man, it's, it's almost over. <laughs> you know, like I'm over the hill. But the reality was Corey Tinboom didn't even become Corey Tinboom, like the superhero that we know her as, until she was in her late 50s. And she spent the last uh, 30 plus years of her life traveling the world and testifying to um, what that experience had taught her about God and Christ. It was a pretty remarkable story. So I encourage everybody to read it. I encourage everybody to see the play, of course, or the movie. Yeah, it's a great story. 
I'm always so awestruck when I come across people who do these amazing things later in life, like Corey, because yeah. I know I'm 46 and I'm starting to feel not elderly, but but old. And my parents are older now. And, you know, so I'm just yeah. like, is it already? How did my life pass me by? But yet, you know, <laughs> right. we have heroes like Corey who say your life is not over yet. Right. You can right. still do things, even small things. So, yeah. It's amazing. So what do you admire most about Corey? And I guess what what about her maybe challenges you? One of the things that really drew me to the story was kind of the question of theodicy. I don't, a lot of people might not be familiar with that word, but it's a, it's a term that means how can we believe in the goodness of God in a world where he permits evil? And uh, so I, I really wrestled with that as a, you know, going to the concentration camp and seeing what Corey and Betsy had been through. And in that process, hearing about their consistent gratitude for, for you know, their circumstances. And uh, so I really wanted to approach the story in terms of like, like, let's wrestle with this and feel like, you know, how do we answer that question if we can answer it? And I, ultimately, I think there's an unanswerable um, nature of it. Like if it was answerable, we would have done it by now, right? It is a mystery. Mm-hmm. But I think we can approach some answers by listening to the testimonies of people who have been where we have not. I said that Corey spent the rest of her life testifying to what she had seen. And I got really fascinated with the words testify and witness. Because in the church, we talk a lot about people who witness or people who give their testimony. And we have in our minds what we think that means. It means, oh, evangelism, or telling people about how you became a Christian. Right. But if you really think about it, those are legal terms, uh, judicial terms. And so when the Bible talks about like us being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, that doesn't mean just, a, just old Christians. What that means is that it's this huge body of people who have evidence of the world that we do not, and they're giving the testimony before the court so that you can believe it. And so Betsy and Corey Tinboom were witnesses to things that I can't imagine. And they, or Corey, left that experience committed to testifying to what she had seen for the rest of her life. Like it changed her in that way. And so in the context of suffering, even as, as I am so uncomfortable with the idea that, there is, that God, for some reason, doesn't stop the evil that's in the world. Uh, but in the context of my questions about that, it's part of my job to listen to the witnesses. And the witnesses are people like Corey and Betsy who have said, hey, we've been there, we've seen it, and we came away grateful. And we saw that there is light beyond this darkness, you know, and that's powerful. It doesn't answer the question for me, but it, it, it assures me that there is an answer that we can or we will one day achieve. Does, it, does that make any sense? Yes. Uh, so that was that was really powerful for me to wrestle through and think about. And then the other kind of thing that I, I worked out in the course of the writing, when we were at Robinsbrook, you know, Corey and Betsy Tinboom weren't the only people there. There are lots of other accounts. And one of the accounts I came across was there was a, a drawing by a prisoner of communion being taken in the middle of the concentration camp barracks because uh, somebody had smuggled in the host and there was a nun there that was giving communion to people. And I thought, that's amazing. And then you even have records written down prayers of some of the uh, the nuns, the way they had prayed inside the camp. And I was so struck 
that those prayers were not, hey, Jesus, save us. Mm. They were more about, thank you for the community that we have found here with our sisters. Mm -hmm. And we pray that the love that we have for each other will one day save those who have placed us here. And it's like, <laughs> like I'm always crying just thinking about it. Yeah. Because that, as, as an American who is lives in comfort, you know, and, you know, goes to the grocery store and has all my needs fulfilled, it's almost impossible for me to put my mind in that headspace of being tormented and seeing everybody around me dying and come to the conclusion that the right response is love and gratitude. <laughs> yes. You know, it's really something. So like that, that struck me so much that I ended up writing it into the play. So it's not something that's in Corey's book. It's not something that I can prove ever happened. But I do have this story of the communion being taken. So in the play, you know, we have a Red Cross worker who delivers the mail and, and somebody's pastor has sent them marmalade and the host crackers. Uh, and it was the host is smuggled in with the marmalade so that the Nazis will think it's just crackers. And so they're in the middle of the concentration camp where they um, revere Betsy as this person who's been reading the Bible to them. They ask Betsy, will you please um, administer the host? And so there's a scene with Betsy performing, you know, her best approximation of, an, of a communion rite with the people that are in the camp with her. And for me, that was so important because... You know, most of the time when I take communion, I'm really aware of the fact that what's going on is it's it's our participation in the divinity of Christ. Like we in the in the act of communion, by taking in what we believe to be the body and the blood of Christ, and I don't mean in the Catholic way, but in the you know sacramental way, mm -hmm. that we believe we are one with Christ in that moment, mm -hmm. and we usually think about that in terms of us being lifted up and as part of the divine. Sort of, But it occurred to me that in that prison camp, there's a sense in which being one with Christ means Christ is also coming down yep. to you and your suffering. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's participating in the, the torment and the death and all of that. And because of that, you know, the gospel says, or Paul's letters say, um, because I partake of great suffering, you will partake of great consolation. And like all of that becomes so much more vibrant when you think about it in those terms of in the middle of the darkest place we can imagine, we are somehow one with Christ and Christ is one with us. And that's where the mystery takes over. Like it's almost impossible to really nail down how that makes any of it better. But it does. <laughs> and the evidence is witnessed to. Yes. You know, this is the way they lived in there, because when they were in line for a medical inspection, I think it was every Friday, they had to get naked for whatever reason, just to humiliate them, yeah. I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> because they never they I think she said they checked their their tonsils, their teeth and in between their fingers or something. And they're standing in line and she realizes because she just read it that Christ was naked on the cross. And she said that whenever she'd see pictures of it in museums or wherever, that he always had a loincloth on. Yeah. She realized that, that Christ, you know, suffered in this way too, that, you know, he yeah. was humiliated in his nakedness as they were. And it just really, right. And she whispered that yeah. up to Betsy, who was in front of her, and Betsy just gasped, and she said, oh, and I never thanked him for that. Right, right. And the, to push that even a bit farther, the communion idea is that not only did Christ participate in that kind of suffering, but 
in that moment, he is also. Like if we really believe that we are joined to Christ and God, which is what we say we believe, mm-hmm. that, that that has to take on real flesh and blood at some point. Mm-hmm. And that means that Christ is there with Corey and Betsy in that moment too, also suffering that. Yes. There was an essay I wrote years ago. Um, I was I just read uh, Silence by Shisako Endo, which is a, a story about Portuguese missionaries in medieval Japan, or not medieval, um, 17th century Japan, uh, when Japan is trying to eradicate the Christians. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, the whole book is about suffering, essentially. And uh, it's really hard to wrestle with. It is a difficult book, and it doesn't offer easy answers. And I was driving one night after I'd just finished reading that, and the car in front of me hit a deer. And the deer flipped over the top of the car and landed in the road and was just kind of kicking and screaming in the middle of the road. Didn't kill it. And so I pulled over and dragged the deer off the road. And um, it was terrified and hurt and clearly wasn't going to live. And I didn't want to leave it. And I also didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, I probably ought to just put it out of its misery. And But then as I thought, thought about that, I said, what does that mean? Like, I'm looking at this big, muscular neck of this deer and thinking, I can't just break this thing's neck. I don't think I'm strong enough. And I thought, well, do I go get the tire iron and iron and beat its death? Like, that doesn't seem right. And so I couldn't figure out how to deal with it. And I ended up just, I realized that when I put my hand on the side, on its flanks, and just petted it it would calm down. And so I just knelt there by the side of the road and laid my hands on the deer until it quieted. And I just stayed there with it and it's suffering until it died because I didn't know what else to do, but it somehow it was happier when I did that. And when I got back in the car, I realized like that is what I believe Christ does for us. You know, like he doesn't necessarily stop our suffering, but he participates in it with us. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's in present. some mysterious way, that, that makes it bearable. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. And now I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. You're in good company. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. My uh, compassion goes for everyone, I think. And I am learning yeah. through Betsy and Corey to, and as Jesus says, we are to love our enemies. And I think that they modeled that so well. So well. Yeah. So what do you think that we can learn through... I guess Corey's journey to becoming like Betsy, who was so Christ-like, you know, I mean, I know we've already talked about it a bit, but I wasn't sure if you had anything more you wanted to say. So a big takeaway for me was um, the sovereignty of God. And as I dug into this story, um, realized like that is a very Dutch view in the early 20th century. Hmm. Um, There's a famous quote by Abraham Kuyper, Uh, theologian that goes something like, uh, there is no inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so interestingly, Kuyper was Dutch, and he was the Dutch prime minister in the early 20th century, and which means that that kind of thinking was what Betsy and Corey grew up in um, nationally, I, I think. And so the Dutch church was very committed to this idea of the sovereignty of God. God is always in control, and we can trust that. And so I think that bears out in their stories. Uh, like, I don't know how to interpret that kind of gratitude that Betsy exemplifies 
without also understanding that she believed that God was in control all of the time, even if she didn't understand it. And then, you know, one of the things that I, as a writer, get really interested in is they're also watchmakers. Uh, and a watchmaker is somebody that puts together a delicate machine and trusts that it is going to run the way it is intended. Hmm. And so there's a sense in which uh, there's a theological watchmaking happening, you know, that uh, we are all members of, of the great machine of creation that God has set on its course. And in the Dutch view of the sovereignty of God, I think they really trusted that that machine was operating correctly, whether they understood their purpose in it or not. Wow, that's powerful. What spiritual practice or practices could we take away from from what they experienced and how they grew in their faith? For me personally, like just spending time thinking about stories like this and reminding myself of the sovereignty of God is really helpful because, you know, um, I find myself leaning on it more and more all the time. For instance, I feel often like, there are a million things I want to do and I don't have time to do them all. Yes. And how in the world do I choose which of these things? And my answer has become, which one of these things do I clearly feel the spirit leading me to? My job is to be obedient to that because the reality is if I really believe what I say, I believe then I've got all the time in the world for this other stuff. You know, like I believe, <laughs> I believe in the new creation I believe that we will work and we will enjoy the fruit of our labors and, uh, you know, we will plant trees and build fences and exercise our art and that will go on for eternity. Mm -hmm. So if that is true, then I don't need to worry about all the stuff that I think I'm missing out on. What I need to worry about is the thing that the Lord has put in front of me to do right now. And uh, maybe it's this play, maybe it's this film, maybe it's mowing the yard, maybe it's loving my wife, you know. And I trust the spirit to lead that. And it's my job to discern those things one at a time and not worry about the rest. There is a moment in the play when Corey is in the camp and uh, they're making radios. And the other prisoners say, oh, well, we're going to make the radios so that they don't work. Hmm. Uh, because if we make radios that work, we're just helping out the Germans. Yep. And uh, one of the other prisoners says, you know, the quality of our work will be our protest. The rest is up to God. You know, so it's that same idea that we need to look for the thing that we're called to in each moment and just trust that the machine is going to work the way it is intended. It's not our job to understand the machine. So a good spiritual practice would be saying yes to God in each moment. Yeah, yeah. And that's not easy because you no. have to discern those things. You know, sometimes it sounds like it's yes to 14 things. Yeah. It's, and it's aligning <laughs> our will with God's will. I mean, that's, Absolutely. yeah, I've been thinking yeah. a lot about that. Yeah. Well, I know you need to go, but thank you so much for the time yeah. and the gift and, and all the hard work that you've done. Thank you. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks again to Pete Peterson for sharing the takeaways he learned from his time steeped in the Ten Boom story and for highlighting the spiritual practice of saying yes to God that Betsy and Corey teach us. This powerful cinematic stage production, The Hiding Place, is now available for streaming on the Lamb and Flag Studios website lambandflagstudios.com, or click the link to it on our website. From Pete's writing and production to the actors' performances, it is a masterful retelling of Corey's heart-wrenching and faith-inducing story. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fiction That Forms Us. To read articles, learn more about this episode's guest, as well as what we've discussed, visit fictionthatformsus.com. 
Connect with us on social media through Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to those also on our website. This podcast was produced by Rob Lahoda. Our theme music is All Flame from the Carolyn Aarons album, Recognition. Learn more at carolynaarons.com. May God grace us with more of his presence as we learn to fully live in the kingdom of God by aligning our will with God's will. Until next time, omnia corda and flammate, set every heart on fire. Mm-hmm.